Welcome, I'm Paul Bishop, your host for this installment of Six Gun Justice Conversations. These are bonus downloads where my co-host Richard Prosh or I get to hang around the virtual Six Gun Justice podcast water cooler, talking with friends and fellow writers who are also fans of the Western genre. With me today is David Gregory, creator, writer, and executive producer of the award-winning Western audio drama Powder Burns, which premiered in 2015 to rave reviews. Featuring the tales of a blinded Confederate general turned Texas lawman, the Western Writers of America has hailed Powder Burns as darn good entertainment and the future of Westerns. David is an actor with recurring roles on The Good Fight, Insatiable, Constantine, and Deception, and he earned a Voice Arts Award for Outstanding Storytelling Best Performance for his role as a deputy in an episode of Powder Burns dealing with Alzheimer's disease. Hello, friend. Hi, Paul. Thank you for having me. Powder Burns, this is great to see the Western brought vibrantly to life again in a modern era. How did you come about wanting to do this? I knew that I wanted to re-legitimize the genre for today's audiences. It was important to me that if we were going to do a project like this, that we had a way to make it relevant to people that maybe didn't want to sit down and listen to their iPhone or their computer. I say this because in hindsight, it was 2014, 2015 when I started working on the project. And I think Serial had just come out in podcast form and had blown people's minds as far as what we could do on podcast storytelling. So while there were serialized fictional podcasts then, I don't know if they were as in vogue as they are now. Now we see them being turned into television shows. So I knew that sort of to grab people's attention, especially the younger generation, that would be important. And my goal was to combine the John Ford West sensibilities of storytelling, the sentimentality of that with what would sound like either a spaghetti Western or a Quentin Tarantino movie. So if you listen to the show, we've got a rock score, but we've also got some sweetness, some sentimentality as well. Were you a fan of Westerns that made you turn to the genre? I grew up on a steady diet of John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, Henry Fonda. I remember seeing The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and what an impact that had on me, just in the way that they told the story, that it wasn't as conventional as the other Westerns I had seen up until that point. The Oxbow incident with Henry Fonda was a big, searing moment for me. I just remember seeing it and going, oh, I didn't know that they discussed these kinds of things in movies that were from that era. And of course, it's based on a great novel. I didn't get into the Sergio Leone Western style until I was in college. It was a lot of the John Ford, Howard Hawks movies for me, but I've always been a fan since I was a little kid. When we started talking about doing the Six Injustice podcast, we didn't know where to start. So we did a lot of research and we did a lot of experimenting. We were going to do a practice show, but we decided that would sound really false if we did a practice show and then did the same show over again. So we made an episode zero, which was an unplugged episode just to try things out. But with Powder Burns, there seems to have been a lot of thought and engineering that went into this right up front to get such a professional result. How did you know where to go to do this? Well, part of it was I grew up listening to old time radio shows. Gunsmoke was a big one for me. And then, of course, the Jimmy Stewart Western, The Six Shooter, that I think only ran for one season. Those ones heavily influenced not only me as a writer, but also the show and the style. I wanted to not shy away from long, drawn-out scenes where we uncovered character development through dialogue, because that's almost all that the radio has to offer. We couldn't do a lot of big action scenes, and I knew that going in. And because it was a blind sheriff, I didn't want to resort to having a narrator, because I feel like that was a cop-out. I think I actually wrote out of order. The second episode where Burns has to deal with a mentally challenged boy who's held up the bank was the first episode that I wrote because I thought that was a stronger pilot episode. 
And at the time, I was talking to a friend of mine who was a story editor, and he said, you got to go with this other episode as the pilot because it's a little easier to follow the characters. It's a better way to introduce all the characters and to take our time with how we were going to introduce people. It's very easy in a radio drama to, I don't want to say overcast it, but to have too many characters introduced at once and then people can't keep track of them. So it can be very frustrating for the audience. So I think our initial episode is only five of us. And I wanted, as we went along the show, to introduce characters slowly so that by the time we got to our finale, we had an entire cast and everybody could follow. Oh, this person's from that episode and they're coming back. I was very adamant that actors in scenes created a vocal sandwich. This is going to sound a little strange, but John Wesley Shipp, who plays the blind sheriff, and I play his deputy, we have a, a similar timbre in our voices. So I raised mine a little. And then if you notice, other actors that came in and did scenes with us would adjust their timbre accordingly, just to make it easier for audiences to delineate that. And it, it doesn't mean I was trying to dumb it down, but I definitely wanted people to not struggle in the early episodes to figure out who people were. And I think starting there, Noah, my director engineer, will also say that I think we went 400 emails back and forth on the first episode alone, just trying to get the tone. It was also the only episode where we had a completely separate day of rehearsal just to get the actors used to the world that we were trying to live in. I think I even drew maps of the jailhouse just to show geography. Whenever somebody would get confused as to what was happening in a scene, we would stage it like we would if we were shooting a film. And I would talk them through, you're actually over here, so when you say this line, you might need to yell it across the room a little bit more. When we approached it from that standpoint, making it as specific as possible, I think that shows up in the performances, and I think it's ultimately a better product because of it. I also look at the actors that were doing this for a living for CBS and NBC on both coasts, ABC, Mutual Network, during the golden age of radio, and all of them straddled the television and the radio worlds anyway. So both influenced the other. And I've noticed after working on this show, going back into television, certain things that I would only do with my voice on the radio actually help in television as well. They all pat each other on the back. <laughs> they do. And we make the best of our experiences and we learn as we go along as well. Your sound is so rich and real. Did you do this in a studio with everybody there? Yes, sir. So we recorded every episode at Ripley Greer Studios in New York City. It's a studio that almost anybody can rent. And one of the reasons why I was drawn to it was because we didn't have to have an in-house engineer sitting with us. So I was able to have my director engineer sit at the controls, do what he needed to do without feeling like he was beholden to a separate company that might be like, oh, don't do it that way or whatever. So he had complete creative control as far as the audio goes. And then we were able to squeeze into a booth. I, I think one of the downsides to that is there were only two mics in the booth. So there were times where we'd have to take turns at a mic if we had you know, a scene with four or five people. And then of course, it's Noah's job to truncate the space in between the lines. So there was some downsides to that. And you had to make sure everybody had a shower the day before because all of the jostling around. <laughs> the, the actor that plays the banker, Hank, in the first episode while we were recording, there's an outtake of him saying, that smells like the Old West in here. <laughs> it got pretty warm. And, uh, <laughs> But I think when you have limitations like that, it almost spurs on the creativity because as soon as someone tells me there's going to be a problem or there's a logistical concern, I immediately start thinking of other ways that we can fix it. And we had to do that in certain episodes where we'd get some sound back and it was like, oh, this is compromised slightly. What do we do? And I don't know. I thrive on problem solving on the fly. It's a lot of fun for me. What was it about the idea of a blind sheriff and taking these modern day themes, such as a mentally challenged young man who's a bank robber and even Alzheimer's and dealing with them in the Wild yes. West setting that appealed to you? 
It's funny because the idea for the show, I initially was going to write it as a space opera and I wrote two episodes and hit a wall. And one of the reasons why I decided to do that genre first is because the sound effects are so interesting. Like a guy essentially wakes up in space, much like Charlton Heston did in Planet of the Apes and doesn't know where he is or how he got there. And it didn't really work. And I tried it again, a sort of a private detective, Philip Marlowe style noir. And I wrote even less. <laughs> then I tried it again as a Western and wrote, I think, three episodes in two weeks. And so sometimes the characters just speak to you and they start to write themselves. But most importantly, because the Western was always my favorite genre, I think I found it so precious in my mind that I didn't want to touch it first for some reason. But when you strip away everything else and you have story first and you have characters first, there's a lot more that comes out. And so I had a brief outline. It's seven episodes. It's essentially the last week. This blind sheriff is in office. He knows he's not going to run for re-election because of his accident. He's tired. He's worn out. So there were a lot more things that I could play with. When you're in space, if there's a problem, you can call somebody. Houston, I have a problem. In the West, there's a point where we leave him by himself and how terrifying would that be? And with the Alzheimer's episode, we brought in Ed Asner to play my character's father and how terrifying an illness like that would be undiagnosed in 1860s Texas. There's so many other things to explore that I thought this is what it has to be. It Usually stories tell you what they want to be. I, I just feel like I couldn't not do it. Now, I have to say, I think I hate you a little <laughs> bit because you were able to bring onto the show one of my heroes of all time because I grew up on the Man oh, yes. That was my formative years. And the Magnificent Seven is my favorite Western. And here you have Robert Vaughn on your show. How did <laughs> well, that come so about? I had shot an independent film in 2011 cast by this woman in New York named Donna McKenna. And one of the reasons why I took the job, aside from just wanting to work, was the cast was off the charts. It was Christopher Lloyd, Robert Vaughn, Jerry Stiller, Wayne Knight, the list goes on and on. And so I knew that part of her magic as a casting director was the ability to assemble people like that. So essentially, I used our pilot episode to do a crowdfunding campaign and tell audience members, if you like our show and here's the first episode, this is what we'll do with your money. And the day the Kickstarter finished, I called Donna and I said, so I'm going to go out of order a little bit, but I would love to have you on and help get some of these kinds of actors. Dr. Vaughn doesn't appear until episode four, but we recorded episode four right away because I wanted to make sure that we had him, especially with a freshly minted budget. I called her and I pitched it. I was like, I know you've gotten him for projects before. If he's willing to do this, we're willing to bring him down in a town car, obviously from his home in Connecticut to record in New York. And so I brought him down and we had a table read out of respect for the process and out of respect for him. And then we went into the booth, did his scenes first cut him a check and got him out. And he graciously told me that I was the quickest, most efficient producer he's ever worked with. I had the <laughs> mugs made for the show with the poster of the show on there. And so I gave sure. him the mug and then I gave him the check and he goes, oh, the check's the most important part. <laughs> he was <laughs> most kind, full of stories. And he was gracious enough to lend us himself for a photo shoot afterwards. And so we were getting the pictures taken. And I asked him, being an actor myself, I was like, is there a particular side that you would like to stand on? He goes, I think I'd like to stand on the right. And I said, sure. So we're getting the pictures taken. And he says, when Steve and I were shooting Magnificent Seven, I was like, oh, my God, here we go. <laughs> he gets to tell me of their exploits that are in both of their biographies. But he also says we're at the premiere and Steve always wanted to stand on the right. Because if you stand on the right, that's camera left. And that's the way the caption reads. So Steve wanted to be first. And I said, Mr. Vaughn, I will happily stand uh, on your left for you so that you can be first in the caption because that means the world to me. And he was very gracious. 
Listen, I'm not someone that gets super emotional when celebrities passed away, but I absolutely wept when he died. I can say this having watched these films and, and grown up on a steady diet of them. They truly don't make them like that man anymore. I met David McCallum on a couple of occasions, but I'd never had the opportunity to meet Robert Vaughn. But when he passed away, I still felt a little piece of me had gone with him. I couldn't agree more. Because of the importance his roles have played in my life. Thank you for sharing those stories with me. That was an added bonus to this episode. What is the future for Powder Burns? That's a wonderful question. I ended up, because of the last episode, for example, we had to have so many separate recording sessions because the actors were so busy that I ended up bringing people in for some of them just a solo session to record their lines. So that ended up costing the show more money just because it's still studio time, whether we have a cast of 12 or a cast of one. So what ended up happening, especially with the last three episodes, is I ended up financing most of them out of my own pocket. And I believe actors should be paid for what they do. So I paid every actor, in my words, not enough. What an astonishing concept. <laughs> so <laughs> I think the future of the show, I've already started working on ideas for the show and tinkering with, with how we would incorporate guest stars in a semi-different format. And those that have listened to the show know that we end on a big cliffhanger and that there's a huge way that the show can turn around. But I feel like in order to move forward, it would have to be funded again. And I have submitted the show for some podcasting, I don't want to call them grants, but competitions, other scenarios where the prize would be, hey, we'll fund your season. And because when I submitted the first season of the show to, I think it was Austin Film Festival, they wanted to see a package of scripts. This was back in 2017, but I made the top eight in the world. So I, I think the show wow. has a great potential to reach people. And certainly with how podcasts have been received, especially in the last five years since we began making the show, like I said, our secret weapon was John Wesley Shipp, who has this resurgence on the Flash role that he played for CBS in 1990, and then getting people like Edward Asner and Robert Vaughn. So if we can promise to do another season with that kind of talent, I think we'll be in good shape. But I just got to be able to pay that talent. <laughs> There's yeah, the rub, there is right? The rub. And, and because I wear multiple 10-gallon hats on the show, not just as an actor, but also producing, it's incumbent upon me to make sure that happens for them. All of the current episodes are available at powderburnswest.com. We're also on Apple Podcasts. Okay, Apple Podcasts. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. I really look forward to a second season when it comes around, and I encourage all of our listeners who enjoy the Six Gun Justice podcast to check out Powderburn. Thanks a lot, man. I really Thank appreciate you. Paul. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the Six Gun Justice website at sixgunjustice.com for information on prior Six Gun Justice conversations, Six Gun Justice speed listens, and full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, along with regularly updated book reviews, articles, and interviews covering all aspects of the Western genre. Until next time, be kind to others, be kind to yourself, and keep your masks up. Adios. We're out of here. Let's ride.